Amen. Well, if I were to ask you this question, what is it that you believe that the church, not just the church here at Celebration, but the church in America needs more of? What would you say? How would you answer that question if it was posed to you? If there was a survey that we gave out this morning, I've got a feeling that we'd probably get a lot of different answers by folks. I think some would probably say, well, listen, we need more biblical preaching. Others would say that we need more theology, we, mo- we need more maybe discipleship, more missions. Some might say what the church, especially this church, is really missing is more donuts and coffee. Uh, that's what we're missing. And, um, and, and you know, I, I think that you could make an argument for probably all of those things, especially for more donuts and coffee. Uh, I think you can make a legitimate argument for all of those. But if I were to write out what I believe that the church, not this, just this church, but the church in America needs more of uh, in, in, in this day and time, what I would suggest is that we need, uh, yes, we need more teaching, we need, we, we need more theology, we need uh, more fellowship, we need all those things, but above all, we need more godly men who will actually do what it is that the Bible is teaching us to do. Um, this is not a beat you up kind of message. You know, we said this a couple of weeks ago, uh, Mother's Day, it's all glitz and glamour and glory, and men, it's always you stink, you're awful, you're horrible. And that's not what this is. This is just where we are in the text of Scripture. But in light of all that's going on in, in, in the world, in the, in the government, in our daily lives, I believe what we need is we don't need men per se, uh, we don't need more uh, uh, know-it-alls, we need more do-it-alls, okay? So now you need to know the scriptures. You can't live out what you don't know. So I don't want to diminish the significance of study and knowing God's word and preaching and, and all of those things. But, but I'm, I'm just saying what we need more of is godly men who will actually do what it is that we're learning, what it is that we're preaching, and what it is that we say that we believe. Uh, Paul, I believe at this particular point in his letter, understands that this is the need of the church at Philippi. He understands that, listen, it's been very clear. He's laid out. He says, live a life worthy of the gospel. Don't, don't lose sight of that. That's what the whole letter is about, living worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, to do that, you're going to have to be unified one with another. <clears throat> in order to do it, you're going to have to Find humility and be humble of heart. You need to consider others as more important than yourself. You need to look after not only your own interests to meet them, but to meet the interests of those who are around you. And we know that Paul has given us the ultimate example of all of these things in Jesus Christ. And then last week, within the last two weeks, we've talked about how we need to work out that salvation with fear and trembling. And so at this particular point, if I were the Philippians, I think this is where Paul, what Paul's thinking. Very clear, they've got all the teaching, they've got all the theology, they've got all the illustrations, they've got the application, but now they need to know, can they do it? Can they truly live out the gospel in the way that he's, he's calling them to live out the gospel with this fear and trembling? Are, are they going to be able to do it? And, and now look, we, we know that Jesus is our example. We know that Jesus is our model. But let's face it, Jesus is God. Jesus is perfect in every way, shape, and form. We are not. We have been depraved in every way, shape, and form. We've fallen in every imaginable way 
though we are saved by grace through faith. Yes, we are not the same people that we used to be, but can we, men and women of God, can we be all that God has called us to be? Can we, can we truly live out the, the gospel? And so Paul knows that this would be the mindset. So what he does now, very, very, uh, very smoothly, very timely, he gives two flesh and blood examples of people who are living out um, the gospel in their everyday life. He gives the example of both Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now, this morning, we just want to look at Timothy. Uh, because of time's sake, as you can see, we're going to be observing the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, which is always a precious time in our church. It's not something that we just slap on and put on the calendar. It's a precious time of remembrance and worship for us. Amen? And so before we go there, though, we want to ask our men, men, do we truly live out the gospel? And if we are, how do we do it? Let me, let me suggest two ways from the life of Timothy this morning. First of all, if you're going to live out the gospel, listen, man, be predictably trustworthy. Be predictably trustworthy. Now, note, if you will, follow along in verse 19 in your Bibles. The Bible says, I hope in the Lord, trust, or, or, or Jesus, uh, to send Timothy to you soon. So that I too may be cheered by news of you. What Paul wants to do here is he wants to return the favor to the church at Philippi. Philippi knew that Paul was imprisoned under house arrest there in Rome. Uh, he's struggling. Financially, he's struggling. And so what they do to encourage him, they take one of their own, a man by, that we'll read about uh, next week. They send one of their own um, to help him and to encourage him. And they send him with an offering, a love gift, to be able to help him to be able to pay his rent in Rome. He can't work. He's under house arrest. It's hard to work when you're under house arrest. There's no internet that he can work on from home. And so, so there he is, and they're giving him this money to come and to be able to support him during this time of struggle. But it wasn't just that. It was also all the news that he was able to be able to receive um, from the one that they had ultimately sent. This Epaphroditus that they ended up sending to him begins to encourage him on all that, that is going on in the church at Philippi. And so now he wants to return the favor. And he wants to return the favor by sending one of his own, by sending Timothy to them to now go and encourage them in the Lord. And, and, and now, no, he can't do that yet. He wants to send them. He can't do it yet. Here's why. Because even though Paul believes that he's going to be set free from prison, he believes that this trial before, uh, b before Caesar is going to ultimately lead to his dismissal, but he doesn't know that for sure. He doesn't know for sure. Things could turn wrong. He's got a feeling that the providence of God is leading him to believe that he's going to be set free, but he doesn't know for sure. So we can't send Timothy there yet. Here's why. Because number one, he's in prison. He needs the encouragement of Timothy. He needs the leadership of Timothy with him, especially if this thing goes bad. If he ends up going in, in prison longer or... If he's put to death, he needs his right-hand man there to be able to fulfill and to listen to instruction that needs to be carried out that Paul himself is not going to be able to do. But Paul does have every intention to sending him. So what he does first is he sends this man Epaphroditus back first with this letter, and he's letting them know, hey, I'm sending Epaphroditus with this letter and this instruction so that later Timothy will come to you, Lord willing, Timothy will come to you, and when he goes to you, he will find out that all that I'm writing in this letter, you're doing, that you are living a life worthy of the gospel. Then when he comes back to me, I will then be encouraged in Christ. So he goes, I'm going to send Timothy, but here's the question that I ask as I'm reading through this. Why Timothy? 
of everybody else in Rome, of all the believers in Rome, why specifically is he promising that Timothy is going to be sent? I think the simplest understanding of this is that Paul could trust him, that Timothy was a man who was reliable. Listen, before Paul began to mentor Timothy, there was another young man that he began to mentor. Listen, not everybody is fully and predictably trustworthy. On a former, uh, before he ended up going to Philippi, he had took another missionary journey. And there was a young man by the name of John Mark who he put underneath his arm and he began to travel with he, him, him, himself and, and with Barnabas. But on the trip, all of a sudden, John Mark begins to miss mommy. And he goes, I I can't do this anymore. I got to go home. And in the middle of the journey, the mission trip, he's got to go home. Well, Paul doesn't like weak Christians, right? And so he sits there and he goes, go home. That's fine. I'm done with you. Washes his hands. They come back. They're ready to go on the next missionary journey. And Barnabas goes, hey, the son of encouragement, right? He's like, hey, let's get John Mark and give him a second chance. And Paul goes, no second chances with me, buddy right? And he goes, he's not going with me. So much of an issue was this, that Paul ends up taking somebody else uh, on a different missionary trip, and then there goes his old friend and John Mark going in the opposite way. And so not everybody in the ministry, not everybody around us is really this trustworthy, but Timothy had demonstrated himself to be. Did you know to show yourself trustworthy, it's not just by doing the right things once, but by doing the right things again and again and again and again. So Paul knows he can trust Timothy to go to Philippi and to begin to teach them and to begin to teach them only what the word of God says, nothing more, nothing less. And he's got a long track record of this because he's not only going to send him to Philippi, that we know from the word of God that he sent him to other churches as well, that he had also sent him to a church called Thessalonica, which was not nearly as mature as the church at Philippi, that all kinds of problems And of all the people, Paul sends Timothy to go into instruct them and to help them. You know, what a thanks, Paul, right? And and then he sends them not only to Thessalonica, he sends them to Corinth. Corinth is one of the most fleshly churches of them all. I mean, very difficult issues he had to work through. Paul sends him again. Why? Because he trusts him. He knows that as he sends them, he's going to say the same thing that Paul would say if he was there himself. Here's what Paul says about Timothy. In 2 Timothy three ten through 11, he describes the godless generation and what they're like, and then he contrasts that godless generation by describing Timothy. He writes about Timothy, listen to this, you, however, have followed my teaching. The word followed there in the Greek literally means to follow closely. He says, you have followed my teachings, you have followed them closely, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, and my steadfastness. What is is he saying about Timothy? What do we know about Paul? Everything was about Christ. Everything was for Christ. Everything was to, to, to be as Christ would want it. And he says, and you followed the exact same pattern as I am on. He's trustworthy over a long period of time. Now, it's not only trustworthy, but he's predictably trustworthy. You knew what you got when, yeah, Timothy, you know anybody like that? You know somebody, you know what they're going to think, you know what kind of decision they are going to make. He was constantly, consistently trustworthy to do what the will of God said all the time, 100% of the time. Now, we don't often think of the word predictable as being a compliment, do we? Oh, he's so predictable, right? He just is so, you know, it's a, if you had a yearbook, if you graduated high school and you had a yearbook, 
I didn't buy a yearbook. I was so cheap. And uh, so it's probably a good thing. I'm afraid of what they might write in, in, in the yearbook about me. But you know what you wanted, right? You wanted, hey, listen, you're the most likely to succeed. You're the most likely to be rich and have a big house. You're the most likely to hit it out of the park, baby. Nobody's sitting there and says, you're most likely to stay exactly the way you are. Because you are predictable, right? It's just not something that we often think of. It's a, and I don't know if this comes from our culture or from movies. I was trying to think through this. We don't want to be known as predictable because it sounds so boring, yes, and ordinary. The, the young girls didn't want didn't to marry the predictable guy, right? Uh, we, 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 right, ladies? I mean, like when you were younger, I don't want the predictable guy. What do I want? I want the wild card. And we men, we want to be the wild card, you know, even if there was nothing wild about us. We want to be like the squirrel in the road, as Jimmy says, you know. You don't know which way we're going. You know, and that way, that way, which way am I going? Wild card, you know. And, and so, so the idea is there's nothing, in, we don't want to be predictable because it seems so ordinary. It seems so common. But let me suggest this. Those men in whom it can be said are predictable because you always know what they will do. And what they will do will always be what the word of God calls them to do that is anything but ordinary and common. There are many families, there are many wives that I've talked to, to, to and, and everything, and they said, well, my, my husband is predictable, but he's predictably unpredictable. In other words, I never know what he's going to do. Does he want to go to church? Does he not want to go to church? Does he want to pray? Does he not want to pray? Does he want to do what God says? And, and, and if you really get to the root of the problem, the problem is, is they're willing to do what God wants them to do when it benefits them, but when it doesn't benefit them and hard, oftentimes they're not nearly as predictable to be able to obey and to do what God has called them to do. What we need more than ever, man is some predictability in the life of your wife and predictability in the wife of your kids. It would be so wonderful. And I used to be so offended by this. People would come and say, hey, I want to ask your opinion about something. And they say, tell me a little bit about what you believe about this. And I always state, well, this is what I believe the word of God clearly states and teaches about this. And you wouldn't believe how many times I've had somebody respond to me, goes, well, yeah. I'm like, what? Well, that's what I figured you were going to say. And I was like so offended by that for so long. But now, studying this passage, I'm like, I don't need to be offended by that. The fact that I'm so predictable that even before they ask me the question, that they know that how I'm going to answer that question is through the word of God, that's a wonderful thing. Men, your wives and your children need nothing more and nothing less an absolute predictable trustworthiness that you will be a man, whether it seems to serve you or not, that you will be a man of the word of God, which means you know it and you obey it. Number two, and I only have two points. Praise God! Yeah, I know. Number two, first of all, if you want to live a life worthy of the gospel, you need to be predictably trustworthy and my ipad just went off and it's hard to look cool typing in the code once again but we will move forward number two if you want to live a life worthy of the gospel be genuinely concerned be genuinely concerned and notice if we will look at verse 20 okay this is important verse 20 for i have no one like him he's talking about timothy who will genuinely 
who, who, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now, this is an astonishing statement that he makes here. Now, remember where Paul is. He's in Rome. But what is in Rome? A large church. The church at Rome is there. There are literally hundreds of church members there at the church of Rome. In fact, whenever Paul writes a letter in the New Testament, most of the time he addresses people within the congregation when he's writing, like here at Philippi, there's a few names he mentions. When he writes the letter of, uh, of Romans, he, he, he mentions no less than 26 individuals within that church by name. So there's a lot of believers around him as Paul is right there in Rome. It amazes me that Paul even needs this church over in Philippi to be able to kind of help and to be able to support. And so what Paul is saying here is that of all these people, of all the people that he knows there right in Rome, that he interacts with in Rome, that are in the church at Rome, he says, I have no one like him, no one like Timothy. And the word that's translated, have no one like him, is also found in chapter 2 and verse 2, a little bit above, when he trans- but there it's translated, of the same mind. He says, of all the other believers around me, I have no one that shares the same mindset. Sometimes it's translated the same spirit as Paul. Now, what is Paul specifically referring to? What does it mean? In what way? Does, does nobody else have the same mindset? Or what way does Paul or Timothy have the same mindset? That is that no one else can he find that has a genuine concern for the Philippians' well-being. Apparently, the church in Rome, the majority of those in the church at Rome were interested in only themselves. They were only interested on what was going on. They were only looking after their own interests. They were only concerned with meeting their own needs. Listen to this very carefully, men. That's all that they were ultimately concerned about. Now, this doesn't mean that there weren't true believers in the church at Rome. It doesn't mean that all of them had, had, had false motivations, but many of them had wrong motivations. We saw this earlier in chapter 1 when Paul said that there are some, because of my imprisonment, that are preaching the gospel. He says, but many of them, most of them, in fact, are doing it out of envy and rivalry. In other words, there are some that are actually doing the work of the gospel, doing the work of God, but they're doing it for their own selfish gain, for their own selfish benefit. Now, again, it doesn't mean that there are some that weren't doing it out of the right motivation. Paul said that there were some that did it, did it out of goodwill. And again, it doesn't mean that Paul is, who, who is he specifically talking about? That's what I want to try to get to the, the bottom. Who, who's he talking about when he says that there is no one? Well, some police, some scholars believe that Luke, who's normally with him, is not with him at this point. Aristarchus, who's often with him, is not with him at this point. Timothy's the only one with him. He can't be referring, listen, men, he can't be referring to the women in, in, in the congregation because the, the women in the congregation would not have that, make that decision to go all the way to Philippi and to be able to help the Philippians on his behalf. There's only one, he says, is willing to be able to put up, uh, aside all of their needs and all their wants and all their plans in order to go to be able to help someone else that needs help, that is concerned for somebody else. And he says, all the, he, so who is he talking about? He's talking about the men in the church at, in Rome. He says they are all concerned with their business. In fact, what Paul ultimately says there is he says that, that none of all of them seek after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. He says their thoughts, their emotions, their prayers were singularly focused to themselves. Now, here's another way to say it. The greatest joys they experienced is when good things happen to them. The greatest pains in life, in their life, was ultimately when something bad happened to them. This is completely opposite of the Apostle Paul. 
This is not how the Apostle Paul or Timothy ultimately worked. His, you know, Paul was, for the most part, a, a pretty stable person. Don't we like kind of stable people? I don't do well with folks that are all over the place all the time. Like, you don't know what's going to happen. Do you know who? You might be married to this person. I don't know. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. It's an awesome day. Next day, how you doing? It's the worst day ever. You know, I, I just, I can't keep up with that. On staff, I, I, if, if you're probably not going to last long if you're all over the place, all right? This is what I say like on Mondays. Monday is my day to be out on the cliff. Nobody else can be there. It's my day, all right? Because I just feel miserable after I preach on Sunday. I don't know why that is, but it's like my one really unstable day. So by the way, this is free. If you want advice and you want to really know what I think, ask me Monday, but don't complain about it, okay? All right, just kind of letting you know, because there's really no filter, there's no filter. What do we, somebody, somebody made that mistake. They asked me last week. I gave it to them, and they're like, wow, let me ask you Tuesday. I said, probably a better thing, all right? So, so the idea here is, is, is this. He's a pretty stable guy. In Philippians 4, 11, we'll study this a little bit later in weeks to come. He, he says this. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. You know what that means? He says, no matter what's happening in my life, he's pretty, pretty even keel through all of this, no matter what happens to him. He gets a lot. He doesn't freak out. And, he just sits there and goes, okay, wow, that's great. Paul, you've lost everything. You're about to die. All right, man, that's good. We'll, we'll keep rolling with this, right? emotionally what happens to him doesn't really impact him instead he reserves his greatest emotions for what's happening to those around him the greatest joys that he experiences is not what's happening to him but what's happening to other people concerning their spiritual well-being paul says in chapter two he says complete my joy you've already brought me so much joy now complete my joy by being of one mind he says then his greatest concerns, his greatest pains is for other people. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. 28, he writes this, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He's not anxious for himself. You know what he's anxious for? The spiritual well-being of other people. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, he says, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you in our labor would be in vain. So here's what's interesting. He talks about experiencing joy. He talks about experiencing anxiety. He talks about experiencing fear, but none of it has to do with what is happening or not happening to him. It's all based on an outward view of what's happening and his concern for the spiritual well-being of other people. I've heard men, and I hear this oftentimes, and even at funerals, he is an awesome or was an awesome dad. He was an awesome father. And those are things that we want to hear, right, men? I'm talking to the men specifically right now. Right, men? You, you want to hear that. You want that to be your legacy. But let me warn you that being a believer in Jesus Christ is more than that. It's more than that. See, we can become so focused on our own salvation and our own walk with Christ and taking care of our own families 
and making sure that our own families are taken care of, that in all of those what would seemingly be righteous things, we can be unrighteous because it's all about me. Should we do those things? Absolutely. James warns us. He says, look, he says, if you don't take care of your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever. We need to be doing that. We need to work out our own faith and fear and trembling. Yes, you need to work at that. You need to be focused on that. You need to be sharing the gospel with your children. You need to be consistent, uh, consistently faithful and, and, and trustworthy within your home. All those things need to be able to happen. But it cannot be so introspective as the Romans were at this particular point that they forgot that there was another world beyond their own world. What we need, men, is we need men who will sit there and go, yes, I've got responsibilities here, but I also have responsibilities there. That my mindset is not only on what gratitude, look, pouring into my wife and pouring into my kids and pouring into my personal friend, there's a part of selfishness over that, isn't it? If I pour into them, then my life will go well. He says, look, all the people in Rome, they're sitting there going, hey, look, we're with you, we understand this, but we've got too much to do here to be able to help anybody else and anywhere else. And they sound, hey, look, there's no doubt they sound compassionate. There's no doubt that they're using compassionate words. They would probably say, the people in Rome, yes, we truly care for those people in Rome. Here's how I work this out with my sanctified imagination. You know what that means? That means discredit all of this, what I'm about to say. It's not really uh, on par with the word, but just listen. In my sanctified imagination, Paul is sitting there, and he's anguishing with great anxiety in, in in, in in his jail cell, and he's sitting there and going, I care so much about the Philippians. I want to know what's going on. Remember, you can't pick up the phone. You can't just text. You can't email. I want to know. I need to know. I need somebody. I can't go myself where I would. I need somebody else to be able to go and check on these other believers. Will everyone do it? And I bet you there were people there with Paul going, man, I feel your heart, brother. I, I feel the pain inside of your heart. Man, it's, it's obvious you love these people and you're concerned for them. Man, we are concerned too. What we need to do is we need to pray for them. Yes, let's pray for them. And then Paul says, but will one of you go? Paul, oh, we would love to go. But we have so much responsibility right here. We've got so much to do. I've got work. I've got my 401k to build up. Retirement is coming. I've got kids, I've got family, I've got all of these things I got to be able to do. And so, listen, understand something very carefully. You can sound immensely concerned for other people without being genuinely concerned for other people. Because it doesn't just take your words, it takes your actions. This is how James says it in his book. He says in 2.15, he says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for their body, what good is that? Nothing. Men, this is what we need in American churches today. We do need men that are unbelievably trustworthy within their home. They're always going to do what is right. But we need desperately a group of men that genuinely concerned with people other than themselves. That they are concerned for a lost and dying world, not only here, but around the world. And it's not only that they are concerned. Here, here's, here's, 
this is probably going to upset people. Good. Um, what? W- listen, we hear so many people quit, please, whining about the state of the country. Unless you are willing to do something about it, you sound like a giant pansy to sit back and go, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, as if in some way, shape, or form, it makes any difference in what God has called you and me to do. God is not dead. God is alive. Now act like it. Act like it. Take the gospel of Jesus Christ and live by it daily, consistently, no matter what, and take it beyond who just you are and take it and be responsible of sending people and going and using your money and your time and your energies and your gifts to take that gospel to your neighbor and around the world. Amen? And he says here, in Paul, this, is, this is what I love, he says, 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me, with me, in the gospel. Listen, men, your worth when you die will not be determined by how much you leave behind for your wife and children. Your worth when you leave will be determined of the impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you had on your wife, children, and the uttermost parts of the earth. The uttermost parts of the earth. You say, well, Brother Mike, I don't know how we can do all this. I don't know how I can focus. I've got so much going on with me in my life right now. Two things. Number one, I think the reason for your depression most of the time is because you and I are thinking too much about ourselves. If you're only thinking about yourself, if your mindset is on yourself all the time, you're thinking about yourself, about what you have, about what you don't have, about what's going right, what's going wrong, then guess what? That begins to become depressing when your eyes begin to be lifted up for the well-being of other people. You're considering other people more valuable than ourselves. There seems to be more of a joy that begins to set in and we begin to go to work. Jesus Christ is the greatest example of this. When on the cross, when the wrath of God was pouring out on him so that it would not pour out for you and I, when he was a substitute for us and he was on the cross, he did not begin to bellyache of all the pain and all that he was going through. Instead, he looks out, his mind is on those that are out crucifying him. And he says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Greatest example. Men, we need you. We need you. Will you be, men, today predictably trustworthy? Will you be men today genuinely concerned? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. We do thank you for today. God, I pray that right now in the name of Jesus, God, that we would move, you would move us to respond.